Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang. I, I would say that vulnerability is not a, historically speaking, has not been a character trait to which I have aspired. I think there are probably a couple reasons for this. One is just my personality and biases. I think there's probably a little bit of gender stuff in there. I don't, I don't know a lot of guys personally uh, who wake up in the morning and, and think I'm going to be vulnerable today. I think another part of this is that, at least speaking for myself, I had no idea until recently, until I did this podcast, in fact, what vulnerability actually means. I now understand it uh, and have an entirely different view on the subject, and that's because our guest this week, Brene Brown, has been studying vulnerability for years and uh, talks about it in a way that makes it much more comprehensible and attractive to me, at least. And I don't think I'm alone here because she's a mega best-selling author. She has a new Netflix special called The Call to Courage, and that's really her argument, that that vulnerability – it's not some oversharing or something like that. It's 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 actually the prerequisite for courage, and which is why Brene spends a lot of time talking about vulnerability and teaching vulnerability to people in executive suites at the CIA and and even the special forces, the Seattle Seahawks. She really talks to high achieving people about the importance of vulnerability. I learned a ton. We'll get to her in just a second. Before we do, though, I want to dive into some uh, one significant piece of business, one announcement this week, which is that we have launched at the in ten percent world. We are launching uh, a major brand update, so you'll be noticing big changes, especially in the app. If you've refreshed the app anytime recently, you will see that it looks quite different. So we've reinvented our look. We've launched a new logo, a whole new visual design. The the folks who initially launched the app, myself included, are not known for our sense of style. So the app looked the way it did, which was fine, but now it looks immeasurably better. What we're not losing, however, we are not losing our humor and realness. That stays. It's just that we're adding a sheen of uh, some aesthetic uh, improvements. But the the it goes deeper than that because we've we're also launching a few new features that are worth mentioning quickly. One is. Uh, we have a new night mode in the sleep tab on the app. The sleep tab is is one of the most popular things we do. We you, It now is in night mode. So if you go to sleep using a, a meditation, you're not going to have to worry about the glare of a bright screen on your phone. Uh, the other thing we're doing that is the thing that about which I'm most excited is we've got a whole new type of content we're launching on the app. So heretofore, it's all been meditation. So videos that teach you how to meditate and then guided audio meditations. Now we have a whole new section called Talks. At least that's what we're calling it for now. And if you listen to podcasts, which obviously you do because you're listening to this, I think this is right up your alley. What we've done is we've recruited our teachers to record a whole slew of bite-sized uh, zaps of wisdom that you can listen to. They're like five to ten minutes long. You can listen to them outside of your daily meditation practice, or if you don't have time to meditate at all, you can put on one of these talks, or I prefer the term zaps of wisdom, while you're brushing your teeth, while you're walking to work, while you're in your car, while you're cooking, while you're exercising, commuting, whatever. And it's a great way. Well, w the way I think about it is 
meditation is a hard habit to establish. And even if you uh, even if you've established it, it's easy to sort of hit plateaus or to go into a trough where you're just wondering, what am I doing here? Is this worth it? Am I making? Is it making a difference? It is hearing from people who have traveled uh, this path for a long time and know a lot that can put the whole thing in perspective, can reconnect you to the philosophical and intellectual infrastructure of the practice that can keep you in the game. I think it's a key factor in keeping you in the game, at least from my own experience. And so these talks will be from meditation teachers, but we're also going to be recruiting all sorts of people, including scientists, to talk about issues uh, that go well beyond the cushion, from relationships to the science of stress, sleep, on and on. Really excited about this new section. Go check it out. Final thing I want to mention is that we've done a lot of work in the app around improving accessibility to make the app usable for a broader range of people who have different abilities. So you can now change the font size. You can enable captions on the on the course videos and meditations. And it's easier to navigate through the app using VoiceOver. Last thing I want to say about this is is that it has been a massive lift for the Scrappy little team at the 10% Happier app. I guess we're not that little anymore. But anyway, we're scrappy. And I just want to – it's involved everybody in the organization, but I want to shout out two people in particular. Eva Breitenbach, who's been the – who has spearheaded the move, and then Jeremy Borthwick. Those two, Eva and Jeremy, have just devoted an enormous amount of time to this, and it's great work. So thank you to both of you. Okay, back to Brene Brown. She is a research professor at the University of Houston – Uh, She has spent two decades studying courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy. She's written five number one New York Times bestsellers, including Daring Greatly and Braving the Wilderness. And she has a new special on Netflix called The Call to Courage. I will admit that I was not particularly drawn to Brene because I knew that she was all about vulnerability and I wasn't particularly interested in that. Uh, So historically, I didn't know much about her. But Samuel Johns, one of the producers on the show, has been really interested in in her for a while. And when she launched this new Netflix uh, um, special, which was very recent, he had me watch it. I really liked it. And so we brought her in to come on the show. She's very funny and incredibly smart. And really reframed a lot of issues for me in ways that um, I'm still – I can still feel her ideas bouncing around in my mind. So let me tell you what we cover. We talk about what is vulnerability actually and why it is the prerequisite to courage. We talk about how she discovered that through her research that vulnerability is so important in a happy and healthy life and how that discovery – rocked her world and sent her into therapy because she so did not want to practice vulnerability in her life. She goes on to speak in detail about ways in which we can operationalize uh, operationalize, uh, these ideas around vulnerability in our own lives and how she did it in her life, how it changed the way she shows up at work, in her personal life, with her husband, and also as a parent. She has two children. Uh, so she goes in depth on both uh, on on all of this. She talks about how setting boundaries is vulnerability, which it was counterintuitive for me, but really interesting to think about. And in fact, she talks about the six myths. There are six things that people think vulnerability actually is, but it is not, including the notion that vulnerability is just sort of wanton, blatant oversharing. No. 
We talked about the problem of people getting too comfortable, which she calls the great pandemic of our time. We talk about the disutility of shame, another area that she has gone in-depth in her research, shame, and how we often armor up in response to shame and how that's, in her view, the wrong move. Uh, we talk about the power. She, there's this one secret phrase that she has found that in her work and professional life has made a massive difference, and that is the story I'm telling myself, dot, dot, dot. So she talks about how using that phrase can elevate the quality of conversation and communication in interpersonal relationships. We talk about how to take hard feedback. I was really impressed by her willingness to share a story about her some tough feedback she had received from people with whom she works. I don't know if she's ever told that story before, but but I was really impressed by her ability to talk about it because I know personally how hard that is. And we talk, of course, about her meditation practice. But since that's not a huge part of of what she's got going on, we kind of save that until the end. So enough from me. Here we go. Here's Brene Brown. Such a pleasure to meet you. I really enjoyed watching you on Netflix. Thank Thank you for making time for this. It's great to meet you, too. So you I was just looking at your bio and it says I've spent the past two decades studying courage, vulnerability, shame and empathy. And I'm just so curious, how and why did you come to these four emotions? It actually makes perfect sense in my mind. Um, So I have a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in social work. And so as a social worker, like my my big takeaway from the $100,000 of school loans for that for that experience was connection is really what matters. It, It is like we're neurobiologically, spiritually, physically, mentally hardwired to be in connection with each other. So I was very interested in understanding more of the anatomy of connection. Like when, like it's such a gauzy word, right? Like what does it mean? And so when I started interviewing and, and I had had some experiences around shame, some personal professional experiences around shame. Like I think I grew up in a pretty shame based environment. And then when I was in undergrad, I worked in residential treatment with kids that had been removed from their parents and would grow up in residential treatment until they aged out. And we had a clinical director there that used to say, you cannot shame or belittle people into changing. Mm. And the first time I heard him say it, I was like, I actually scheduled a meeting with him. I was just like a, I was just like a direct care person getting my bachelor's degree at the time. And he's like, what's up? And I said, you can't shame or belittle people into changing. I said, you understand that's the way the world works, right? <laughs> and he said, he kind of laughed. He said, what do you mean? I said, parents, schools, media, marketing, like that's the way the world works. And he goes, maybe, but there, you know, as a clinician of 30 years, you cannot shame or belittle people into meaningful, lasting change. Mm. So I think I went into my social work career kind of holding that shame thing right there. And then I got the connection, the big dose of connection through my degree so I wanted to study what is connection, does shame have a role, and I spent six years like really looking at that. And then at the end of that six years, I had all this data, and I was like, oh my God, I know so much about shame. <laughs> but I, But inside the data that I have already is the answer to another question, which is what do the men – there are actually people who wake up in the morning and say, I'm enough. Like no matter what gets done and what is left undone, no matter how imperfect I am, I'm enough. Like what do those people have in common? Because that was like a very strange notion to me. I was not one of those people. 
Um, and so I started looking in the same data set at, and I call them the wholehearted people because there's, I'm an Episcopalian and there's a, there's a line in the book of common prayer that says something about loving with our whole hearts. And I was like, these are people, I would describe these as people who live in love with their whole hearts. So as I started getting into that data, what started emerging very clearly was this central variable that they shared in common was the capacity and willingness to be vulnerable. And I was like, oh, my God, this is bad news. <laughs> this is awful. I wanted the answer to be they were shame researchers. Like the, the answer to wholeheartedness is you know a lot about shame. So then that took me to courage and vulnerability from there. So that's the long, the long, tra- long trail. Um, what kind of change did these conclusions make in your own life? Um, I had like a massive breakdown, really. I did like I literally had to put the data away because um, you have to lock it up under like human subjects protocol. I had to lock it up, put it away and then go find a therapist um, because I up until that point in my life, I had spent my entire life trying to outrun and outsmart vulnerability. Like I'm, I was not raised to believe that vulnerability was anything but weakness and kind of the first step to giving people something to hurt you. Mm. Like I just – we didn't do vulnerability like at all. So was that a problem in your personal life, in your uh, parenting and in your uh, um, marriage? I didn't think so. I I didn't think so at the time. I remember like this is a story that like I've been thinking a lot about the story because I don't, I've never told it before. But I remember in the midst of this kind of breakdown period and you know, I was just – I was – always proving and trying to be perfect and like wound super tight. So I was kind of the alpha parent, you know, and like people would call me and say, Hey, are our daughters allowed to get their ears pierced yet? I'm like, no, one more year. And then they say, are our kids, can our kids watch this movie? I'm like, yes, but only with parental. Like I was that like kind of the alpha mom had the answers. I had the answers. Um, but I guess terrified on the inside all the time. And I remember, it's a funny story. Um, I remember being at a, it was, and it was Easter Monday. Like this was Easter Monday, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And being at a yogurt shop with Ellen after school. And I was remote. Ellen's your daughter. Ellen's my daughter. She's a sophomore in college now. And I remember thinking, God, look at all these moms and daughters with their kids and everything's monogrammed and I should get more stuff monogrammed. <laughs> and my phone rang. And I was like, should I answer it? I'm having this moment with my daughter. And I was like, hello? And there was a woman on the other end. She said, Dr. Brown? And I said, yes. And she goes, where are you? And I said, I'm in Houston. Where are you? And she goes, it's Jenny, the event coordinator. And I said, hi, Jenny. And I thought to myself, God, these event coordinators are just like an anxious bunch of people. And she goes, no, wait, where are you? And I said, I'm in Houston. And she goes, there are 2,000 people coming to see you tomorrow morning, including the governor of the state. Why we just got a, a notice from the travel agent that you missed your flight, and like this is this is like a reoccurring nightmare for me. <laughs> and so I was like, "What?" And I said, "My flight's on the twenty third or something at three o'clock." And she goes, "It's the twenty third. It's four thirty. Oh no! And I remember like time slowed down, and I just was like, and I got in the car, and Ellen was in the back seat. and she's like, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "Mom made a big mistake. Mommy made a big mistake." And I was like, Texting my husband, and I remember he came home to drive me to the airport, like left patients in the waiting room. He's a pediatrician. And he's like, you're falling apart, Brene. And I'm like, 
no, I'm not. I'm good. And I said, oh, my God. And I started crying. He's like, on the way to the airport, he goes, what's wrong? I'm like, normally when I go out of town, I make all the food in advance and I put Ellen's school clothes up like with little clothespins that say Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And he goes, and I said, and there's nothing to eat in the house. I've made nothing in advance. He goes, I don't mean to kick you while you're down, but we don't really eat that crap while you're away. We basically get pizza every night and I let Ellen wear whatever she wants, you know? And I was like, and that was kind of the height of the breakdown. I was like, my life is unmanageable. Like I'm, things are not working. And so I stayed in therapy for a couple of years and kind of tried to deal with the perfectionism. And it was all about the vulnerability. It was all about, I couldn't manage uncertainty. So can you help me understand what you mean specifically and granularly when you say vulnerability? And then I guess the second part of that question would be, how did you and how does one operationalize that? Yeah. So the, the, the definition of vulnerability that emerged from the data is the emotion we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So vulnerability is that that an affect and emotion that we feel when we feel uncertain, at risk, or emotionally exposed, meaning we may lose control of our emotion or we're showing an emotion and we can't perceive what people think of us because of that emotion. So that's vulnerability. Uncertainty, risk, emotional exposure. And I think the best way to think about operationalizing it is most of us, in order to kind of stay safe during vulnerability, especially growing up, developed effective armor. Like how do we how did we learn to manage uncertainty? And uncertainty is much more threatening as a child than as an as an adult, right? Because I mean your survival could be at bay, you know, at risk. So over years, over the years, we learned to armor up, and there are many different forms of armor. Perfectionism is one, cynicism is one, control is one, power over. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we we armor up against uncertainty. I'm thinking I've checked all those boxes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so what we know now, and it was interesting because I just finished a seven-year leadership study, and as part of that leadership study, we wanted to see if we could measure courage and vulnerability in people. So we worked with MBA and EMBA students at Wharton, at UPenn, Kellogg at Northwestern, and Jones at Rice. And we developed this instrument. Um, it's an instrument to, to measure daring leadership, like how courageous of a leader are you? But the questions all relate back to vulnerability, meaning, you know, can you tolerate uncertainty or do you default to action bias? You know, can you stay in problem solving or do you just need to fix anything? Mm-hmm. Um, do you talk, if you have something difficult to say, do you talk to people about it or about people, you know, like, and it's really about the capacity to be in vulnerability. And I'm on the wrong side of some of those. Me too. Me too. But I'm working on it. Like I'm aware of my armor and I'm aware of how it shows up and when, um, but the problem is, and I spent a lot of time and I mean, you know, do work inside big companies like, you know, the Facebooks, the Googles, the, you know, the CIA, special forces. Like I do a lot of leadership work. And what's been really – what was really interesting is it would take me a long time to convince people that vulnerability was okay until about a year and a half ago when I was at Fort Bragg. And I just asked this simple question that came to my mind, which is 
can anyone in here, all special forces troops, can anyone in here give me an example of courage in your life or in someone else's life that wasn't defined by uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure? And finally, someone stood up and said, many tours, there is no courage without vulnerability. And then I thought, wow, is that a, is that a fluke? And then, and then you could see the emotion well up in, in these soldiers. Then the next week, I'm with the Seattle Seahawks doing some work with Coach Carroll. Asked the same question. They took a minute. A couple minutes later, Michael Bennett said, no, there is no courage without vulnerability. And just the other day, someone sent me a picture of LeBron James who writes the, the Roosevelt quote that I use to kind of as the epigraph for vulnerability and courage on his shoes. Like, if you're going to be brave, you're going to know uncertainty and risk and emotional exposure. And if you think you're being courageous and you're comfortable, you're probably not being that brave. Can you reproduce that Roosevelt quote from memory? Or some yeah, I can. I can. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who in the end, while he knows he may know the triumph of high achievement, at least if he fails, he does so daring greatly. And so just back – to part of my question, um, well, let me start with you. When you went through the therapy and yeah. tried to make some of these changes in your own life, embracing vulnerability, how did that look when the rubber hit the road in your lived experience? What would your husband tell me if we gave him the mic? Mm. Or your kids? They would say that my husband would say – my husband would just say thank God probably. <laughs> but um, I'll tell you what my therapist would say. I I remember – so it was an interesting time because – let's see. I'm, a, I'm sober. So I'll be 22 years sober in May, like in a couple of weeks. And Congratulations. So, thanks. That's a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. And it was a really weird deal for me because um, I had a very high bottom. Like I did a genogram, like which is like a family map that social workers and counselors do for my last project in my MSW program, my master's in social work program. And I had to call my mom to, you know, like help me figure out the family tree. And it was like, oh my God, there's so much alcoholism. And she's like, yeah, it's really bad. I mean, it was just like, I couldn't believe it. And I was like, this is awful. And then I had a – I was wild. And so I was like, this is not worth it. Mm. This is not worth – this has ravaged my family. Like this is not worth it. And so I remember going to like my first AA meeting and they're like, no, nah, you're not drunk enough to be here. Mm. And then I went to an OA meeting. They're like, no, we think you belong over the codependence. And I went over there and finally I got like the sponsor you're supposed to get the first week. And she's like, you've got the poo-poo platter of addictions, like a little bit of everything. Mm. And I was like, so what am I supposed to do? And she was I think you should stop drinking, smoking, interfering in your family's life, and eating. <laughs> I was like, crap. What's left? What's left? <laughs> yeah. And so so I was newly – so it was part of this, I think, was brought on by – like I was really kind of working a really rigorous spiritual program at the time and having this breakdown. And I remember one day telling my therapist – her name is Diana. I said, I need you to give me something. And she's like, what, what do you need? And I said, I need an anti-anxiety medicine. Like I'm – I can't 
if I'm not drinking and I'm not eating and now I'm going to try to be vulnerable and I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm losing control right now. Like I need some kind of medicine. And she goes, tell me why you think you need it. And I said, because I'm like a turtle without a shell in a, in the briar patch. Like everything is scary and hurts. And every, every time I move, it's like, I feel something terrible. And she said, well, let's work on getting out of the briar patch. And I was like, huh? And she goes, before we give you the shell, which for you has been drinking or food or, you know, perfectionism or work, before I give you another shell, let's try just moving out of the briar patch. And so I think when the rubber hits the road, it was reexamining my life and just saying no to a lot of things I was afraid to say no to. Like I can get into scarcity. Like what if, you know, what if you ask me to come on the show and I say no and then everyone stops asking? Do you know that feeling? I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm or like, you say yes to the show, but other than that, you can say no freely. Yeah. No, but you know what I mean? Like those mm-hmm. kind of things. And mm-hmm. like, um, what if I don't agree to do something and then will people think I'm not grateful? And then, so not disappointing people, not having good boundaries. And so that's what the, for me, the vulnerability is there's nothing more vulnerable when you're raised with like the good girl, perfectionistic, take care of everybody you know, problem that weight to say no and set boundaries. And so I started having to set really hard boundaries with my family. Um, I'm the oldest of four. I had to start setting boundaries at work, which I kind of suck at still, but I'm getting better. But I just had to start saying no. It's interesting because setting boundaries doesn't seem like vulnerability. Really? Now think about it. Think about, think about you've got a parent I'm trying to make up a scenario. You've got a parent that you love and who loves you and you love to see your parent with your child, but your parent talks to your child in a way that you and your partner have decided not to speak to your child. Mm. So you have to say, look, here's what's okay. I love you all together. Here's what's not okay. You can't use that language when talking to my child. Oh, who do you think you are? You're still alive. We did pretty good. You know, boundaries are boundaries are always vulnerable because – you're going to disappoint people. Oh, it's in the setting of the boundaries. Yeah, it's in yeah, the setting and it's in the holding of them and the maintaining yeah, yes, of them. Yeah. Like, here's what's okay. Here's what's not. I mean, as a leader. You're revealing what you care about. Yeah, you are. And it's choosing self-respect over making other people happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most of us were not raised that way. Right? Like. I might have been. Were you? Well, yeah, but I think there are downsides to it. We which we can get to. Okay. Yeah. So I was raised more like be polite, make people come, you know, and so there might be some gender stuff in here too. Oh, no question. There's all kinds of gender stuff and privilege stuff. And so I I think, yeah. And there's Texas stuff in there, you know? So yeah. So I started setting boundaries. I started saying no. I started, you know, I had to weed through some friends. Hmm. Yeah. Which is hard. Um, But what about, the control, the these are not my words, these are the words of your sponsor, interfering in your in the lives of your family, being so wound tight, making sure that all the meals are cooked before you leave and the clothes are picked out. That continued? I let go. Oh, you let go? I really let go. Yeah, I let go and I let go, I let go of the family stuff first because it just wasn't, first of all, obviously it's not helping. Um, and then I just started to let go and it was excruciating. Yeah. Because 
you know, that behavior where you're trying to control everything and you and, and it's like help disguised is like it, it's not really help. Mm. Like I'm trying to manage everything to the, for the best possible outcome for me. So I was imagining vulnerability more as and this may be one of the myths because you in the sh- in the, your Netflix special you talk about the I think it's six myths yeah. of, of of vulnerability but I thought it was more like just like wanton sharing. No, I'm not a fan of wanton sharing. No, in fact I think one of the big myths is vulnerability is disclosure. That's one of the six myths. It's not. It's you know I do think it's important to share and to build trust, but I think vulnerability minus boundaries is not vulnerability at all. It's inappropriate sharing, oversharing, shock and awe, desperation, but it's not real vulnerability. I mean, real vulnerability. Like, it's like when leaders say to me, like, I believe what you're saying. How often should I cry? What should I disclose? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, you may believe what I'm saying, but you don't get what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is if you want to be a leader who believes in vulnerability, like, for example, a lot of times I go into companies because they're having struggles around innovation and creativity, but they've set up these perfectionistic cultures where failure is completely punished. And so you can't expect people to innovate and create if you don't allow people to fail because by definition, innovation is iteration, failure, and iteration. Like that's the definition. And so it's not about personal disclosure. In fact, a lot of people use personal disclosure as armor. Mm. Like, I just met you. I really like you. Like, we have some things in common. Here's my deepest, darkest secret. And what I'm really doing is testing to see if you'll still be around or confirm my my thinking that no one really cares about my struggles. You know, that's that's armor. So vulnerability is not that. It's about the ability to manage uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure without armor. And one of the things that was really interesting in the leadership study is my hypothesis, which was wrong was that fear was the greatest barrier to courageous leadership. But it's not fear because the courageous leaders that we interviewed were like, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid all the time. <laughs> I mean, I'm afraid all day long. The biggest barrier to courageous leadership and courage in general is not fear, it's armor. What do we do when we feel exposed? How do we self-protect? And how do those pieces of armor keep us from growing into who we're supposed to be? But isn't the armor donned out of fear? Sometimes, but not always. That's not always the driver. I think could just be habit. It can be habit. It can be. I mean, it can be control. It can be. It can be a lot of things. I think the armor, but it's not. It's look. One of the biggest findings for me, again, raised fifth generation Texan. We grew up believing you're either brave or afraid. And what I believe is absolutely true, based on you know just now topping 400,000 pieces of data, is that you can be brave and afraid at the exact same time, at the exact same moment, and most of us are. And so it's not it's not fear that gets in the way. It's succumbing to needing to armor up that really gets in the way. It's Does that make sense? It, it's, it's not – Fear is not the problem. It's giving in to the fear. It's giving in and, yes. then, and the result of giving yes. in to the fear is armor. It's actually – it's about uh, kind of embracing your fear or as you say, embracing the stuff. Yeah. It, it, last night we did this really cool event here in New York and a woman stood up and she was shaking and she said, you know, I just finished my first book. I'm writing really honestly about addiction and parenting and 
and my life. And she's like, I just like I'm screwed if it does well because people will know more about me and I'm screwed if it doesn't do well. And I'm just I feel sick. Like and I said, congratulations. (laughs) And I said, that's what courage feels like. And she goes, oh, but it's so uncomfortable. And I said, I know. That's what brave feels like. And I said, let me ask you this. Do you feel alive? She goes, oh, yeah, I feel alive from head to toe. And I said, that's courage. Like, I think the great pandemic of our time right now is comfort. That somehow we believe that we are entitled to be comfortable. And I've never done anything really meaningful in my life that was comfortable. You know, just never. My mother, who's a kind of a trailblazing physician, um, uh, advanced pretty high in the hierarchy at uh, Harvard Medical School before there were a lot of women there. And she likes to say, you know you're out front when you have arrows in your butt. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's it. No one out front isn't beat up a little bit. I mean – and so, and what scares me, I think about, I mean, there's many, there's many reasons I'm hopeful today as a researcher kind of sitting across from people for the last couple of decades. But I think what scares me today that's relatively new is I see an increasingly, I see an increasing number of people opting out of love because of their fear of grief, opting out of courage because of their fear of failure, opting out of belonging because of their fear of disconnection. Like, and I think somehow it was that we've been sold a bill of goods that somehow we deserve or entitled to not hurting. (laughs) And no one knows how to hurt, you know? And so instead of feeling pain, we cause pain, you know, instead of feeling uncomfortable, and just kind of writhing in it a little bit and, and breathing through it. That's why when, you know, like there's an interesting intersection with our work, I think. We don't know how to handle the immediacy, the, phys- the physiology of vulnerability. Like, interesting, I did um, some work with a company, very, well, probably one of the fastest rapid growth companies in the United States right now. And I spent a day with 20 senior managers. And the minimum tenure in this room was probably 25 years. And we did these role plays. And about half of these folks, very senior people, tapped out of the easiest role play. I brought three in increasing difficulty. Tapped out of this role play because they said it was too uncomfortable. Um, and it was a really easy role play. It was what, like, what did it involve? You had to tell someone on your team that the cologne or perfume that they were wearing was giving other team members headaches. And it went from that role play to a role play where I'd have to sit down from you and say, Dan, I know you've been working your butt off for the last six months and you really wanted project lead. But the team decided that to, that to give it to someone else. And I want to be honest with you about why. There have been some issues around reliability that have been around for two years and no one has ever given you that feedback. People have just passed you along from team to team without ever giving you the opportunity to work on this. And I'm here to stop that. I'm here to say we need to own that, you know, because so often. That was so well delivered. Oh, um, I have an advantage because I, I know the role play, but um, <laughs> and I have to do it in front of people a lot because they're like, there's no, 
there's no possible way to do this without being a jerk. And and your point is there's a vulnerability in that, even though the person saying those words is the one with the power. It's the vulnerability in being honest. Yeah, because you can be an a- you could like gear up and be like, hey, you didn't get it. Work harder. Or you could be avoidant and just pass them along and just pass them along. Right. right. But the vulnerability, like like one of the big one of the big things I talk about in Dare to Lead, the leadership book is clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Hmm. You know, like when we are not clear with people and we, you know, we make up a million stories about, well, it hurt their feelings. Uh, it's all about our comfort. Clear is kind. Here's the thing. I believe in you. We got some work to do. I think we can do it together. I think it's going to take six months. Here's what it looks like. Operationalized. Just really clear. Here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. Let's dig in. Clear. Kind. But that's vulnerable. And you have no idea how many people can't do that. But it's not the it's not the stereotypical version of vulnerability. No. Which is what I like about it. It is it is real vulnerability. Right. It's, it's not, not the, the mythology. Myth. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. And I don't know. Someone asked me the question, and I don't know the answer to it on Twitter yesterday or something. Why do you think these myths surround vulnerability? And do you think there's there's you know do you think there's a gender thing here that vulnerable vulnerability is seen, you know, as weakness? And and the thing about it is that there are there are women who struggle with this as much as men for sure. And I think it's it's about shame because the greatest shame trigger for men is the perceptions of weakness. And for women, it's don't be imperfect. Be perfect and take care of everyone while showing no effort. And so vulnerability is just right in the face of both of those. Does that make sense? It does. I'm just thinking like, is that the thing that I that would trigger the most shame for me? I think the thing that would trigger the most shame for me would be that I'm somehow irredeemably selfish. What do you mean? Give me an example. Just don't care about anybody except for myself. That that stuff in that area. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I got some stuff around there too. It's not necessarily weakness. Maybe, yeah. Well, it's a kind of weakness. But it is it's not. It's not the where I think most minds would go immediately when you think of weakness. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. So I think that's why a lot of male leaders will say things to me like, "So should I cry?" <laughs> and I'm like. I don't know if you're cry or cry. If you're not, don't don't fake cry. I mean, there's no there's nothing worse than fake vulnerability that that will bite you in the butt every time. Have you ever had a 360 review? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I had one recently. I'm writing a book about it, and uh, some some of the listeners to the show will be familiar because I've talked about it a little bit. And one a couple of the findings go directly to what. First of all, it was devastating. It was like a 41 page, 16 people anonymously interviewed for an hour. 41 page report it was it was horrifying and uh, I went into a lot of shame immediately after reading it for an extended period of time and I could still go back to it this happened I would say 9 months ago mm-hmm. and one of a couple of the things that are that came up one was lack of clarity and feedback so a kind yeah. of cowardice there around just telling people the truth in a kind way and if I did tell them the truth it was often in an unkind way uh, which was clear but Probably the signal wasn't received because it was a, there was too much. Can be heard, yeah. Yes. And the bigger one, though, the number one complaint, if memory serves, was emotional guardedness, which goes right to what you're talking yeah. about. And I've wondered, and I still wonder, what do I do with that? Because I'm not a crier. Um, and I know you're saying, you're not saying go cry. No. But I don't know what emotional, lowered emotional guardedness would actually mean. It's a tough question to put to you because you don't know me. I don't know you. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I I guess 
I guess I would ask myself if I got that feedback. Um, I guess the only thing I would ask myself, I have mixed feelings about 360s, first of all. Oh, really? Yeah, for sure. Say more. Um, I don't think they're the... I, I think a 360 review is super helpful. How they're handled and done, I don't think is really helpful. Because you mean you get the results and you're on your own? Well, you get the results and you're on your own. And I've never really sat across from anyone that's had a 360 that didn't push them into shame. And shame is usually not a catalyst for growth and change. Right. So luckily, this 360 was done by a very skillful sort of Buddhist-inflected company. And they've there's been ongoing oh, that's great, uh, one-on-one yeah, that's great. coaching yeah. and very strenuous – Pushing away from me from shame. Yeah. So I think if I were you, like this is this is why the 360 is hard. I'd rather be in a culture where people can have these conversations directly in the eyes of the people that are giving the feedback. Because um, I would say, help me understand. Like I would, I would want examples, and I'd say, help me understand what it might look like if I were less emotionally guarded. Mm-hmm. How would I show up different with you or for you? Um, what makes it scary? What, what makes my armor scary around that for you? What makes, what makes me, is it, am I difficult to approach? Like I would ask a lot of questions because I think in those questions, that's where the real heart of change is. So like, so I just got, I, it wasn't a formal 360, but it was like more like a freaking intervention, um, where people on my team sat me down and said, there is an emotional intensity about you when you're fired up about something, when you're really mad. That's very hard to be across from. And we're used to it, but some of the more junior people are not used to it. And we know that it's important you to for you to have a culture where people can speak up and disagree. If you don't do something with that, you're not going to have the culture you want. Wow. So Brene Brown, the queen of vulnerability, was – can can – Run afoul of her own. No, oh, yeah, because I because because I would because I would never dub myself the queen of vulnerability. I would right. say I'm a vulnerability researcher who's working on it every day. Yeah, that was unfair on my yeah. part. But but basically, I meant like the person who has popularized this concept in a way that has really gotten into the culture, perhaps the most prominently. Let's yeah. maybe that would be a more fair That's way fair. to put it. Uh, so I apologize for the glibness, but it's so interesting, and I think very important that you're willing to say this because. Does it, just because you've named something and described it and advised people effectively doesn't mean you're advertising yourself as an avatar of perfection. Oh, my God, no. I think that's why people resonate with a TED Talk and hopefully with a Netflix special because they see me struggling. I'm yeah, honest. Like I'm, you know, like, like yeah, I, I mean, like, you know, Steve and I have been together for 30 years and we have two amazing kids. But like I'm like, you know. Charlie will come in and say, hey, this happened at school. And I'm like, that's you – know, I'm trying to do this like Buddhist thing from Pema Chodron where <laughs> compassion is not a relationship between the wounded and the healed. It's a relationship of equals and that compassion is knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. So I have – I use a, a light metaphor, a light switch metaphor with my kids where if they say something hard's going on, I try not to run and flip the switch on. I just try to sit with them in the dark. And teach them how to feel that and mm. be in that. That's really good. It's it's really it's really powerful. And my husband's a pediatrician, so he like uses it a lot too. Like because sometimes sometimes parents will say, "How do I fix it?" And they're like, "He'll you know sit with them in the dark and teach them." The biggest gift you can do is 
teach them how to feel the disappointment and feel their way through it, to teach them how to feel the grief or, you know. And so I'm, I'll say, you know, Charlie, and he'll be like, can you fix it? And I'm like, you know, I can't, but I can be with you in it. And I can tell you about how I've felt before when this something like this has happened to me. And then he'll be like, okay, well, I think I'm going to have some alone time. And then I'll walk out and look at my husband like with like, like, you better fix this crap right now. I mean, you fix it. You call those teachers and you tell them right now that I will have them arrested. Like, 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 like I go crazy. Like I'm a human being. Like there's that emotional intensity. There's the emotional yeah. intensity or like, like, um, this friend of mine's daughter got like somebody asked her to a homecoming dance and then called her and said, I decided to take someone else. I didn't know she would say yes. And like they, they got someone better. And so like the vulnerable response, like the, the you know, it would be like, I really hear that. That's really hard. It's hard to see our kids in pain. But I was like, oh, no, I know someone who knows the Jonas Brothers. I'll have them come pick her up and then we'll show that little jerk. You know, like, and she's like, that poor kid's like 14. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to beat him up. Like, you know, so no, I'm just a normal person that the only difference between me and probably even like, you know, my dad or people that were just like, don't be vulnerable, sis. It's dangerous, you know, is I'm aware of what I'm doing. But it's still my first – it's still my default. How did it feel when you got that feedback from your team? I was super grateful. They're hurt? You know, there was a twinge of – I mean, I recognize that in myself. And I recognize that in a lot of leaders that I work with too, that emotional intensity. Um, and No, it didn't because I trust them and I think – we have this culture at work that we've worked really hard on. And so like that story, that, that the saying, the story I tell myself, mm-hmm. we be, that we say it 20 times a day. Can you say more about that? Because you talk about this in the special and I think it's really potentially very powerful. So can you just talk a little bit about that, that expression, the story I tell myself? Yeah, it was interesting. When I was doing the research for Rising Strong, um, first of all, this sentence, like the story I'm making up, the story I'm telling myself has floated around in the data for over a decade, but it never really saturated. And for a qualitative researcher, I'm not going – I'm looking for data that saturates across, like that I see it so much it's predictably going to come up in everything. And so – but then when I started doing the research for Rising Strong, which is about, okay, so you're brave and vulnerable. The only guarantee is you're going to fall and no failure and dis, you know setback and disappointment. How do people get back up? Is there a way that people have found that works? So every single one of the research participants that we would really classify as highly resilient, like the highest resilient – use some form of this sentence. And as I started digging into it, it made total sense because when something difficult happens, so let's just do a scenario here. I work for you and you and I get out of a meeting and I look at you and I'm walking back to my office and I'm like, hey, good meeting, Dan. And you look at me and go, what the hell, Brene? And you just give me this terrible look and then walk in your office. Everyone I know would be triggered by that, right? (laughs) Right. And so the brain says, my job is to support you. And, and, and survival is my only thing I care about. There's no close second. What's going on? I can, you, you know, tension, anxiety. It's not just like a saber tooth running after us. It's it's the part of our brain that's like fight, flight, parasympathetically freeze. And it still perceives vulnerability, emotional risk as threat. And so the brain, if you give the brain a story and you help the brain, you know, because we know now for through pet imaging, the brain recognizes the narrative pattern of beginning, middle, and end. It explains why we've used story to teach and communicate since the beginning of time. You give the brain a story that helps it understand what's safe, what's dangerous, what's okay, what's not okay, who's after you, who's for you. You get a chemical reward. If I can say, oh, 
Dan hates me. He's always hated me. He's never trusted me. He hated what I shared. He hated my presentation in that meeting. The brain will be like, okay, chemical reward. We know what's happening. We know he's not safe. We know how to protect you. The problem is that the reward happens regardless of the accuracy of the story. <laughs> and the more nebulous and gauzy the story is, the less the reward. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want something like, hey, what's up with Dan? Maybe it's not about me. No reward. So what I found is that – so I pick up the phone. I call Lauren, my colleague. Hey, do you have a meeting with Dan today? Yeah, in an hour. Don't go. Cancel the meeting. I don't know what's going on with him. He's going nuts. He's – I think I'm going to – you know, you may get fired today. Like how many times a day do you think that happens in offices where people start? I mean have you ever led a team through change? I've never had anybody report to me in my profession. You have. Okay. So like in the absence – this people can take this to the bank. In the absence of data, we make up stories. Yes. I've done that a million times. Yes. because we're, my bosses. Right. Because we're a meaning-making species. Yes. The great example is you're you're in a hard text conversation and you get the three dots and then nothing <laughs> and then nothing and then an hour later, still nothing. You've got a huge narrative built up about what's happening, right? Where that person is probably just like, you know, going for their run or, you know. So I come back to you. I knock on your door. Hey, Dan, you have a second. Sure, come in. We got out of the meeting today and I said, have a good day. And you kind of looked at me like you were pissed off. The story I'm making up is something happened in that meeting that you didn't like, and I wanted to see if there's anything we need to clean up. And you look at me and go, that meeting was scheduled till 11 o'clock. We got out of there at 1230. I have Zumba at 1130 every Thursday. And I'm like, but what about the part about me? (laughs) And you're like, no part about you. I mean, how often do we do this with our partners? Do you mean like, Hey, I'm just I've, trying to think of what I would say if my partner said she had Zumba. Yeah, anyway, no, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, like I'll say, Steve, like, hey, I've got the like, you know, I've got the pediatric society meeting tonight. You don't need to go. Oh, okay. Are you mad? I'm like, no. I mean, like, if you don't want to take me to your party, like, if you know, if you don't like what I'm wearing, that's fine. You, you take, call a date, get a date. He's like, Jesus, I just am saying, like, I know you're busy. I know you're flying out tomorrow morning, um, and these things are so like, I'm like. Are you sure? And he's like, okay, what story are you making up for today? And I'm like, and we do it together all the time now. But the stories that we make up, because we're making them up to self-protect, the stories we make up grab our greatest shame triggers, our biggest fears about ourselves, Mm -hmm. and just explode them in order to assure maximum protection. So whatever that shame trigger is for me, you know, like, oh, my God, there's a pediatric dinner tonight. I don't have the right thing to wear. And oh, so you don't think I have cute clothes to wear tonight? He's like, wear your jeans. I'm wearing I don't care. Like, you know, he wears a white bed and jeans every day in cowboy boots to work. Like he could care less what I wear. Um, but I'm making up that story because I'm in a bad place because I'm packing to go to New York the next day and I have no cute outfits to wear on your podcast. You know, like that. that's it's that's how it works. And. And with kids, I know you have a teenager, right? I have a four-year-old. Yes, you he acts four- like a teenager. Oh, you have a four-year-old. Yes. You got a baby. Yeah. So I have a thirteen-year-old. Said to his mother last night, "Daddy hates you," and I know because I called him and he told me. <laughs> so he acts like a teenager. That's four. Yeah. But that's that's the that's the beginning of the what's the packing order of love here? I was like, wow, his game is strong. His game man. is strong. Wow. Wow, you better you better get some of these skills right now. You better skill up. No, I'm worried that I know where he's getting it from. <laughs> that's, that's my shame place. That's the story I tell myself. 
that he's going to be not a nice guy because daddy's not a nice guy. He's never seen me do any of that stuff, and he certainly didn't call me. Yeah, that's totally but, normal. Yeah, he's just manipulating his mind. That's totally yeah. normal. Yeah. yeah, that's four. Yeah. That's such a great t- – that's like – it's so funny. It's the great thing about me married to a pediatrician is like I'm like, this is what happened today. It's, it's just the word – he goes – he's, he's like, oh. Trying on that behavior so developmentally appropriate. Uh, okay. Great news. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm like, really? He's like, great news. I was like, I think that's a BS frame just for me, but I'll take it. But um, it's a better story. Yeah, no, but yeah. like I have a 13 year old and 19 year old. And so teaching them kind of, we call it SFD for. You can say whatever oh, you want. We'll bleep it. But okay, yeah, yeah, no, SFD first draft. <laughs> And for kids, stormy first draft, you know, churches. Um, so the first draft is the first story we make up. And so when my kids are on social media, are they like, everyone's going, everyone's doing this but me. Everyone was invited but me. Every, yeah, that everyone gets, you know, fractions but me. I'm like, do we know that for sure? Is that a story you're making up? And they're like, well, it's a story I'm making up. I'm like, okay, how do we check it out? And so you use this in your office culture, which made oh. that, that intervention with you. It sounds like that. Yes. Was- yeah. It's because we 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 tell we're truth tellers, really. And it's when people come in and work with us or they're new, they're like, I've never worked somewhere like this. Like, we'll just say like when they gave me the feedback, I said, OK, I'm going to call a timeout, which is a big part of our culture, because if you're going to have clear, kind, hard conversations, you have to get permission to call. Time. I'm going to call a timeout for a second. I'm feeling a little shamey because I don't want to be that person. Um, but can we circle back in 30 minutes? And they're like, yeah. So I just kind of walked around the parking lot and took it in. And then I came back and I said that that had to have been really hard to tell me. So I really appreciate it. Um, I will think about it and I will work on it. And I have seen that intensity and I kind of know when I get into it. I don't want to make you responsible for my behavior, but is there any way you can give me a sign when it's happening if I am missing it? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay. But they've all been on the receiving end of that. And so it's when you normalize discomfort and hard conversations in an environment, miracles can happen. I mean, but I will tell you, like with my CFO, I called him probably, I don't know, six months ago, It was I think, and I said, I think we should pull out this partnership right now. We had a partnership with a big media partner that we were negotiating. I said, we should pull out this partnership right now. And he's like, we're not even, we haven't even inked it yet. It's not even, we don't have a contract yet. And I was like, yeah, this is just BS. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm out. And he's like, okay, what's going on? And I said, well, the story I make up is that they've had the red line. They're not getting back with us. They're not interested. So I'm going to pull out before they say they're not interested. <laughs> and he said, okay, super helpful. They've had the red line for two hours. It's 62 pages. We will not hear anything from them for at least five or six days. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, do you still want to back up? No, I'm super excited about it. But I'm just like, he's like, you know, so we are always the story I'm telling myself. Hey, the story I make up is you didn't do that last night. Because you disagreed with us going in that direction. And the person will say, I did it last night. I turned it into your assistant and I don't know where it is, but that's not, you know, so we're constantly checking things out. I love that. I think it's great because, you know, I am, I, I have kind of two jobs. I, I work here at ABC News where I do anchor a couple of shows and technically nobody really reports to me. And then 
I also have a startup company, 10% yeah. Happier. We have a meditation app. And I'm actually now really starting to get pretty granular about corporate culture. And I'm learning a lot. I've never really been in a kind yeah. of management position. They need you. I don't actually have an executive role in the company. I'm a co-founder. But I'm interested in all this because and, – and I've got a lot out of your Netflix special – on this level of like create, how do you create a culture where there is, uh, I think the term of art is psychological safety, where people yeah. feel safe speaking so up Edmonton, and, yeah. and you can be on the right side of clear and kind. And uh, yeah, it's all super interesting. More 10% happier after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Before we go, and I'm just mindful of the time because I I promise to get you out of here. Uh, There are two things I wanted to talk about. One is. I just wanted to circle back to something. I've, I've asked none of the questions on my list in front of me because you said so many interesting things. I'm just re- responding on that. So now I don't have to prepare for anything ever. Um, you said something about people who are wholehearted. They wake up in the morning and feel like I'm good enough no matter what happens. Uh, is that a skill somebody can build toward or is that totally. a factory setting? No, that's a skill. Like, I mean, the factory settings can, can forecast how much work it's going to take to get there. But it's definitely a skill set. It's definitely like I think I feel like I'm working toward it. I feel like I'm further than I was 10 years ago. Hopefully I'll – you know, I I feel like my kids have it so much – they're so much closer than I am because Steve and I have been trying to be very intentional about not using shame to parent, um, about, you know, really trying to make some different decisions than how I think how we were parented, parents doing total best they can, uh, they could with us. But I think – I think it's absolutely possible to for anyone to get there. I mean, and one of the big parts, and I've heard you talk about this with other people, you've got to constantly check the narratives. Like we believe what we tell ourselves about ourselves, you know, and so if someone couldn't love you, didn't have the capacity or didn't want to love you, it doesn't make you unlovable. Because people didn't see value in what you produce or create doesn't make you less valuable. Like we have to really challenge the narratives um, that we have bought into and we built our lives around them. So I think if we can challenge the narrative and learn how to be uncomfortable in emotion, I think almost anything is, is possible. Here's the final question, and maybe maybe we'll have more time after this. We'll see. But I was told going into this that you – 
didn't have much of a meditation practice. And so we always on this show start with, hey, hey how'd you get into meditation? But I didn't do that with you because I, somehow I've been led to believe that you don't meditate. But then in our little chit chat before we started rolling, you told me that you might. So say more about that, if you will. I don't know. Does it have to look a certain way? No. Okay, so here's the thing, that I have to do something quiet, alone, and rhythmic on a daily basis, or I would probably die. What do you mean by rhythmic? Like, I'm a swimmer. Okay. So... Like, so like I just, you know, because like, I, I, I breathe every third stroke. And so it's got to be really quiet. It's got to be like the way I think about it. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty spiritual person, which also happened during that kind of breakdown stuff. I mean, I always, I was kind of you know, raised Catholic or Episcopalian now, but I have a pretty healthy spiritual practice. So I always think about. By which you mean prayer? Uh, both, I think, because praying to me is talking and then meditation to me is listening. Mm-hmm. And so I try to listen in a quiet, rhythmic space. So isn't that meditation? So I'll give you kind of a technical answer. Yeah. Which is that I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talk about meditation, I'm talking about mindfulness meditation. And mindfulness actually has a specific meaning mm-hmm. that I don't know because I really literally don't know because I'm not in your mind as you swim or whatever it is you're doing in these times, which – by the way, I think it can have many, many, many benefits, mm-hmm. cardiovascular, psychologically, uh, exercise can. Um, but mindfulness is, is kind of a meta-awareness. It's mm-hmm. a knowing that you know, or is sometimes is uh, sometimes people will say, we are classified as a species as homo sapiens sapiens. So the one who thinks and knows he or she thinks. And so mindfulness is the ability to see clearly that you have a mind and are thinking and uh, you have this voice in your head that's yammering at you all the time. And the mindfulness st- k- takes you out of that traffic. It allows you to see that those processes and so that you're not owned by it. Oh, yeah. I definitely okay. meditate. Okay. So yeah. it, in mindfulness meditation, you are systematically uh, trying to focus on one thing. It could be swimming. It could be your breath. And then every time you get distracted, you you start again. And what that the skill that develops over time is is mindfulness, which is – an ability not to be owned by whatever neurotic obsession just flits through your brain. I definitely do that. I, I, I definitely do that. Like as if anything, if, if anything, if anything comes into my mind other than the flow of the water over me, then I start over again. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I don't, I'm not as good as it. Like I've tried walking meditation before. I'm, I'm not a, interestingly, like I do like to sit still, but I'm working on the meditation thing, but I think swimming is very meditative for me. It's like a cell, it's like a decompression chamber. Like you can't hear anything, you can't see mm-hmm. anything. It's just you're just breathing. But I, it's definitely the meta thinking. It's an awareness of my thinking. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And it's 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 interesting. I'm glad I asked. I stepped gingerly when you said that because often when people say to me running is my meditation or swimming is my meditation, I say, actually, I think running and swimming or or whatever, yarn bombing, whatever it is you do is great. But unless you do it in a specific way, it's probably not meditation the way I define it. Um, But actually, 
the parenthetical phrase there unless you do it in a specific way. I think you are doing it in a specific way that would make, would qualify it as mindfulness meditation. I think it is mindfulness meditation even because I separate that swimming from when I'm like doing timed 50s or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Like this is really this is really about it's it's a, a mental practice for me. Yeah, for sure. So I think I do that very much in the water. All right, I'm going to I actually have a few minutes to ask this one last question I want to ask. Shoot. We talked a lot about vulnerability as it pertains to sort of professional relationships. Mm-hmm. We didn't get – and parenting a little bit, but we didn't really get into romantic relationships. So in our remaining oh. moments here, what what would that look like? Is it you, – you use the phrase in your Netflix special, I believe, the willingness to say I love you first. Yeah. But is is that what you're talking about? I think it's more than that. I think it's like, you know, I just picture almost every couple I know, myself included, that like – we go through the day so armored, get stuff done, you know, kick ass, don't let anyone see anything that, you know, just do it. And then like we, you know, like then we climb in bed at night, and we're in these big suits of armor, you know, two people that it's like so hard just to be seen. And I think, you know, having a partner that sees you and that, you know, to see and to be seen is the great human need, right? And I think to not be armored with the people that we love, to be able to say, I'm really afraid about this or this really hurt today or, but we don't do that. We go home and we keep it on even with our partners, you know, or I'm really scared about what we're hearing about little Sammy or, you know, like to be able to sink into each other as a place of safety and not one more place where we have to prove and perfect and please and, worry about what people think. I mean, I think that's the goal. I think it is. And I think, I do think saying, I love you first. I do think, say thinking, you know, I'm afraid. Like it was interesting. Cause I mean, this is a great example. I, so in a, another piece of feedback that I've received in my life is that instead of getting scared, I can become scary. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm laughing because it feels like something I would do. Yeah. Like I can get like, like if I'm scared, I can get pretty fierce mm-hmm. about stuff. Um, but I was talking with Steve before I came to New York and we were riding the car and he's like, what is the anxiety about Netflix? He's like, I've watched it. You know, I give you real honest feedback. He's like, I think you crushed it. Um, you know, and I think to be able to go up there and do that and it, it was meaningful. I think it could change people's lives in important ways. And I was like, no, I just, I don't know. I just, I hate this part. I hate it getting out in the public now and I'm scared And he's like, well, what are you scared of? And I said, and like, I didn't want to say it because I knew what it was, but I didn't want to say it. And he's like, I'm going to pull over. And I was like, don't you dare pull over. I was like, don't make eye contact with me. I was like, don't make eye contact with me. And he's like, I'm I'm going to pull over and then I'm going to stare at you. And he's like, oh my God, you're so mean. And so I was like, if you keep driving, I'll tell you. And I was like... And, and I was, he was, I, he, I was like, but don't look at me and don't say anything after I say it or I'm going to be pissed. And he's like, okay. And I said, I think it's the anticipatory anxiety of knowing the cheap seat criticism is coming. Like the first couple of days something comes out, it's the people who love your work. And they're like, thank you. This is great. Really enjoyed it. But then as it goes, as it, as it radiates out, like the pebble in the pond – then people are like, you know, screw you, you know, like, you know, those people come. 
And I said, so it's like it's like when you were 10 and you know your brother's going to frog you in the arm, but you don't know when it's coming. <laughs> and I was like, and he's like, I am pulling over. And I was like, oh, <laughs> damn it. And so he's like, that's coming. And he's like, you know, that's coming because you put your well, you put your work out in the world for a long time and you're super brave. But, you know, it's coming and you can choose not to read it. And I'll be here and it's going to be okay. And it was worth it. You know, like I get teary eyed saying it like that's vulnerable, you know, as opposed to just getting in the car and be like, hey, you know, lock and load. Let's go. Like, like to really let someone see what scares you or like with, with kids. Like I remember one time my daughter coming home. And she had just started high school and she said, I'm running, you know, she was running for class president of her freshman class. And she came home one day and we were sitting at dinner and we'd go around after grace and we say what we're grateful for. And she goes, I'm really grateful for y'all. And I said, and I said, thanks, Al. And we were getting ready to go to her brother. And she goes, because I can tell you how bad I really want this. And, and I'm not going to win. I know I'm not going to win. And I said, yeah. You, you may not win. You may, but you may not. And I said, but when you let people know how bad you want something that you know you may not get, you've already won. Like, that's brave. Because most of us are like, eh, I don't care. I don't really care. I'm just doing it for the fun of it. Let's see what happens. And then you go cry in your room alone. And then you dry your tears and come out like a badass, you know, and like, I didn't really care about it. But to let people know you care about things, like, that's vulnerable. It sounds like it was vulnerable on both sides. You and Stephen Dakar both are vulnerable because he gave you honest, clear feedback. Totally. And same with you and Ellen. Uh, you, she was vulnerable in, in admitting how she felt, and you were vulnerable in not trying to make her problem go away and switch the lights on for her. You sat with her in in the fear. Yeah. See, I listened to what you're saying. Yeah, and no, I think it's I think one of the biggest barriers to raising vulnerable, courageous kids. If I think about my own upbringing, is our parents who put too much emphasis on cool. Mm. Like cool as a straight jacket. Like, like Steve and I'll be dancing around the kitchen in our socks or something. And my son, who's getting ready to read 14, I'll be like, Oh my God, stop. And we'll be listening to some very popular song, like Old Town Road or something. And she'll be like, No, this is, this is burnt in my vision forever. And I'll, and, and we'll stop and get really serious and be like, Hey, look, we won't ever do that in front of your friends. We won't embarrass you. You don't have to dance with us, but in this house, awkward, silly, uncool. Always rules. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you have a place to do that. Uh, Steve was right. You did a great job at your Netflix special. Oh, thank you. And I do recommend unreservedly that people watch it. So That means a lot. Thank you. It's heartfelt. Wholehearted even. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you were. You. It was great to meet you. I could, t- I could talk to you for five hours. Me too. But, um, maybe we'll do it again. I would love that. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you again to Brene Brown. And go check out her Netflix special, The Call to Courage. It's quick and funny, and uh, very smart and interesting. So let's do voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. This is Joni. I'm a listener in Utah, and I love your show. My question has to do with how action ties into mindfulness and meditation. Um, They seem to conflict. Like, how do you have goals and aspirations and be ambitious and work toward things, but also be very happy and comfortable where you are and not have expectations on yourself and on your future and on your workplace? 
So I'm having a hard time tying the two philosophies together, and I really want to be a growth-oriented person. And so how... I just want to hear your thoughts on that. How do they fit in? How does mindfulness maybe even help you with your goals? Thanks. It's helped me immeasurably. This is a, this is a question... We get a lot. I spent a lot. I dedicated huge chunks of a book called Ten Percent Happier" to this question, with which I was obsessed and still kind of am uh, for years. Um, we've talked about it on the show before, but we get the question so much. I think it's worth diving back in. And let me just share two little slogans, both of which I've stolen from other people, that have been really useful for me. So, just to reset on what the problem is. It seems like there would be a contradiction between working hard, striving diligently toward being successful on the one hand, and on the other hand, being relaxed, having peace of mind, enjoying the present moment, et cetera, et cetera. How can you combine these two? So let me just say generally, I think the answer is that it is totally fine to be relaxed, enjoying the present moment, and I think that ability makes you much more effective than doing what I used to do, which is spending all day long in a spiral of anxiety, of comparing myself to other people and worrying about what's going to happen at work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So two, the two slogans that have really gotten me to turn down the volume a little bit on the aforementioned anxiety and turn up the volume on being able to be grateful for what I have, content in the moment, et cetera, et cetera. One phrase stolen from uh, my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, is, is this useful? So if you're like me, you may spend a lot of time lost in spirals of rumination around, I don't know, something that's happening in your relationship. For me, it's a lot around work. And you may just uh, just be playing and replaying nightmarish scenarios in your head or thinking about what's the how am I going to handle this? What should I say during this meeting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think a certain amount of that is really healthy. Nobody's going to move me off of that position. There's a certain amount of stress that's that's part of of working hard toward a goal. But at a certain point. When you notice you've, you're on the 75th run-through of all the horrible ramifications of a bad meeting with your boss, maybe ask yourself, is this useful? That is a game-changing ability to be able to knock yourself out of uh, – to see when you've crossed the line between useless rumination uh, and what I call constructive anguish. So you want to be on the constructive constructive anguish side of the line, not useless rumination. And is this useful can really wake you up to, all right, actually, I'm starting to waste my time here. I'd be better served by, I don't know, making eye contact with my child and talking to her or him or thinking about something else that would be strategically uh, sensible. And I found that turning down the volume in this way on on my anxiety has made me happier and, and easier to be around and easier, uh, even for me, easier to be around myself, and also increased my resiliency. The other uh, slogan I would mention to you is non-attachment to results. 
I think this was introduced to me by two-time 10% Happier guest Mark Epstein, who's a major figure in my first book. Dr. Mark Epstein, psychiatrist. I recommend you go listen to both of his podcasts here and read all of his books because he's brilliant. Non-attachment to results is the idea is that you can work really hard, really hard. I am I'm a I work really hard, but to know on some molecular level that you are not really in control of the results. We live in a universe where everything's changing all the time. It's entropic and out of our control. And to realize there's so many variables that you can work as hard as you want, but at some point you got to just let it go. As Mark has pointed out, this is true not only in work projects, but with your kids. And knowing that, as hard as it is, can, and I'm going to use go back to this word, boost your resiliency because you are, you, if you're as, Brene says, if you're daring greatly, you're going to fail. You're going to get mud on your face. And you you want to be able to wipe it off and get back in the arena. And uh, knowing that uh, that you ca- cannot control the results and therefore doing your best to be to not be attached to them is, I think, a another game changer. Let me just say in some here, though, that you're not going to – I am – I'll just speak from personal experience – I've been noodling on these precepts for many, many, many years, and I'm by no means perfect at applying them. But as a North Star, they're incredibly useful. So you, I suspect you're going to get caught up, as I do all the time, in useless rumination or getting overly attached to results. But having the, you know, you may find that if you uh, kind of put this into the, into your mind stream, that it pops up at useful moments and jars you out of unconstructive cycles of thought and emotion. All right, I hope that helped. Let's do voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. My name is Isabel. I started uh, to meditate this year, although I haven't been able to establish a regular practice. My question is, uh, of late I am uh, sitting, starting my meditation with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, um, and not actually sitting perfectly still, but sipping coffee or tea throughout the 10 minutes or 20 minutes that I'm meditating. Is this okay, or is this um, another distraction? Thank you. Huh. I'm, I think a lot of... I suspect that you'd get varying answers depending on the teacher you were talking to. But So I'll just give you my take, which is I wouldn't do that personally. Now, one can drink coffee or tea mindfully and turn it into a mindfulness exercise, a meditation. I mean, meditation or mindfulness just means paying attention to whatever you're doing right now. So if you sat there drinking coffee and as you reached for it, you noticed the impulse to reach for the cup, the the motions of your arm, the sensations of, of your fingers grasping the cup, the warmth of the cup, the motion towards your mouth, the taste, the swallowing, the placing of the cup back down, the waiting for the next uh, sip. You might notice the desire arise for the next sip, et cetera, et cetera. And then every time you get distracted, which you will throughout, you just start again. Well, that is a form of meditation, no question about it. However, I, I and I think that's a great thing to do, just to do anything mindfully. But I'm of the view... And again, you may find differing opinions here, but I'm of the view that 
it makes sense to have a base of formal practice where all you're doing is sitting with your eyes closed or some people don't like to have their eyes closed and you can just kind of keep them open and gaze at a neutral point on the ground. But you're sitting and doing formal meditation. By the way, you can also do formal meditation while standing or lying or doing that super slow walking meditation. But I think having a base where you're doing nothing but the formal practice of trying to focus on one thing, and then every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. And then I think you can use that to apply it to things like drinking coffee, drinking tea, doing your dishes, talking to somebody, et cetera, et cetera. You can do all of that mindfully uh, to the best of your ability. Just speaking personally, after 10 years, um, my ability waxes and wanes. So, yeah, that's my take. Uh, That is not a scolding. I think the fact that you're attempting to do anything – in this space for 10 or 20 minutes a day is awesome. But I would tweak it and say maybe, you know, maybe do half and half, you know, half a mindful coffee session and half just straight up meditation. And I guess there's a pun there around half and a half that I was not intending. On that horrible pun, maybe I should close the show before I start getting even more deeply into my penchant for dad humor. My dad humor game is tight, by the way. My son sometimes literally smacks his forehead when I make a dumb joke. Okay, thanks everybody for listening. Big thank you again to the folks at 10% Happier who were in charge of relaunching our brand look and feel, Eva and Jeremy especially, but also Derek, Ben, Jeff, and the rest of the team. Too many names to list. And thank you to the producers of the show, Samuel, Grace, Ryan, and many other folks who contribute. Thank you very much for listening. If you're so inclined, we love it when people rate us or review us or talk about us on social media. That really helps getting us new listeners and helps us in the rankings. And by the way, thanks, everybody, for voting on the Webby. Uh, We did win. I think we won two Webbies. One was the Jury Award and the other was the People's Choice. So all you people out there who voted, I appreciate that. They call it the Oscars of the Internet. Just in case my ego wasn't big enough, now I got two Webbies I can brag about. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. We'll see you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now... I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. 
Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.